Hey, Matt, what's your favorite horror movie franchise? Mm, gotta be the Halloween movies. Hey, Tara, who is your favorite horror film villain? Ooh, the Cenobites from Hellraiser. What's the worst horror sequel? Mm, not just the worst horror sequel, the worst sequel in film history, Exorcist 2. Now, other side of that, what's the best horror sequel? Okay, ironically, that is Exorcist 3. What's your favorite horror movie podcast? Without a doubt, The Scary Movie Project. You would say that. Subscribe to The Scary Movie Project wherever you listen to podcasts. And follow us on Facebook and Instagram at The Scary Movie Project. On this episode of Common Mystics, we introduce you to a larger-than-life American legend out of the wild American West. I'm Jennifer James. I'm Jill Stanley. We're psychics. We're sisters. We are Common Mystics. We find extraordinary stories in ordinary places, and today we have a doozy for you out of the American frontier. Jennifer. Jill. I am going to address our listeners for a moment. I just need you to hold tight, okay? I don't like where this is going. You guys, I have heard a disturbing truth about my sister. She has not seen Forrest Gump. Like, for real. Really, Jill? We're going to lead with this? Excuse We're me. We're going to lead with this? Excuse me. I'm not talking to you right now. She hadn't seen it. That's true. She hadn't seen it. And the problem is with... This episode is that our subject this week is in so many parts of American history, like on the front line, similar to Forrest Gump, and Jennifer doesn't get that pop reference. I don't get the reference. So anyway, let's get into it. Yeah, this is another edition of our common mystic road trip to our brothers in Topeka, Kansas. Mm-hmm. And so we left the Osage native area and we were traveling and we were setting our intentions to find another verifiable story that gives voice to the voiceless that was unknown to us. Exactly. Well done. Well done. Mm. We were actually driving around the Tulsa, Oklahoma area when we started to get some impressions. It's true. And the other thing that's notable here is that we were kind of courting the Arkansas River. We were driving along it. We were going over it again and again. That was part of this this trip through Oklahoma. It was very strange because we had intersected the Arkansas River so many times. At one point, I said to Jennifer, if this is the Arkansas River right now, I do not know where we are because... I didn't understand how we kept crisscrossing over this river. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was insane. Anyway, um, your hits, Jill. What, what were you feeling when we were in the car? I, when we were in the car, had remembered a quote that popped in my head from a special about the Donner Party. And one of the surviving Ooh. members, I know, one of the surviving members of the Donner Party had ridden her cousin and said, don't trust no cuts. So I kept feeling like a passage or a cut as they referred to in the Donner Party, which was like a shortcut 
off the beaten track to get through a mountain range. So it was like a shortcut or, or, and they called it a cut or a passage through a mountain range. Very, very cool. What else? What else were you feeling? Well, as we kept crisscrossing and, and intersecting, intersecting the Arkansas River, I kept feeling and hearing blood in the water. There's blood in the water. Ooh. And then I was creepy. And then I was picturing our grandfather watching boxing, like a violent sport on TV, hand-to-hand combat. Very cool. Yeah, what were you getting? So I have to tell you that this was one of the few times when while we were in the field on an adventure, I actually was having a mediumship experience. Why are you smiling at me right now? It's true. He totally came on to me. I I wasn't doing anything. No, seriously. Jennifer was being picked up on in spirit by James Beckworth is what was happening. Exactly. And she was getting all flushed (laughs) and all describing this very handsome man who is rugged. Let me tell you for real. I was getting the impression of... An African-American man dressed in old-time clothing, and he had a hat on, and he kept showing himself to me, and I didn't recognize the hat he was wearing. And I remember writing down on my notebook, preacher, question mark, and then he showed me a cowboy hat, and I wrote down cowboy, and I circled it on my notebook. And that's when she began to get flushed. (laughs) (laughs) That's when it happened. She's like, I don't understand. (laughs) He... Um, I, I felt like I was communicating with him, Jill, because I said in my head, of course, your phone number, um, are you, (laughs) are you married? I can't see a ring. (laughs) Okay, go on. I asked him if he was enslaved. And I didn't understand the answer. Like, he didn't say yes. He didn't say no. But what he did make me understand was he was important. He was an important um, – he was a guide. I felt like he was a rancher, a cowboy. Um, he also showed me a horseshoe. But he gave me the impression that he was very, very important, which isn't – in my logical mind, that's not consistent with someone who would be enslaved, right? Right. Um, the other thing that I was getting um, is the image of Elvis Presley in the movie Flaming Star. Do you remember that movie? I do. And if you weren't already intrigued, now you're now you're really into it. <laughs> right, because of course he was hot. <laughs> Woo. Mm. Let me just take a minute. <laughs> In Flaming Star, Elvis's character is half white and half Native American, and the conflict in the movie is that he doesn't belong in either society. So that's what I was getting when we were in the car driving around Tulsa in the uh, Oklahoma area. So, um, not that I have to tell you this, but Jennifer really <laughs> jumped at the opportunity to do the research and really took the lead. <laughs> I did. I did. So when, I started looking up. I was going to say, what did you find? But you already got there. Go on. See, I told you she's very excited about this story. I am very excited. Okay. So I, you know what? We grew up with a lot of Old West stuff in the house. For sure. I watched every episode of the Old West narrated by Kenny Rogers on the History Channel. Like I would watch it when right. I was getting ready for work. 
Right. And if you haven't figured this out by now, we are well-versed in old movies. And Westerns were a big part of our upbringing, right? In that whole Old West Mom had the Time Life series of Old West books that were like leather-clad with really elaborate illustrations Mm -hmm. that we grew up reading and playing with. Do you know what I'm talking about? She bought them off the TV. She did get them off the TV. Anyway, so I didn't know of any African-American pioneers of the Old West. But you wanted to know. But I sure wanted to (laughs) learn about some. Well, I found this man named James Beckworth. And Jill, let me tell you just a little synopsis of who he was. Okay. He was an American mountain man, fur trader, and explorer. And he was known as quote-unquote bloody arm like that was his nickname bloody arm because of his skill as a fighter Mm -hmm. now interestingly he narrated his life story to a man named thomas bonner thomas bonner was an itinerant judge who would stay with beckworth for a little bit of time and his book about his life was published in 1856, and it was called The Life and Adventures of James P. Beckworth, Mountaineer, Scout, and Pioneer, and Chief of the Crow Nation of Indians. Do you believe that? I do not believe that, and I'm really intrigued because it would seem like someone who was involved in mountaineering, scouts, pioneer, and being a native chief would have came up during, I don't know, some of those Kenny Roger narrated episodes. Right, you'd But think. also in 1856, it seems like a black man narrating his own story is a little unheard of. Like that seems pretty special. The only other black man I can think of from the 1800s is literally Frederick... Um, Help me. Oh, Fred- yeah. Frederick Douglass. Thank you. Fre- Frederick Douglass is the only other African-American man I know from that time period. Yeah. So help me. He's major. How did we not know about this guy? Um, well, I can't answer that question for you now, but I can tell you a little bit about what I learned about his life. Would you please? <laughs> Absolutely, Jill. So according to Wikipedia, his early life um, started in 1798. He was actually born into slavery in Virginia. Now, this is pretty interesting because his mom was an enslaved African-American woman Mm. and his dad was the master His dad was Sir Jennings Beckwith, who was a descendant of Irish and English nobility. So are we. (laughs) You two have so much in common. Right. So nobody knows much about his early, early life. But we do know that Sir Beckwith moved the whole family to Missouri around 1809 when James was young. And this master, Sir Beckwith, took the mother... And all of their children. So he had fathered a bunch of children with James's mom. The master, Sir Beckwith, acknowledged his mixed-race children as his own, but legally he was his master. That's still very special. It, it really is. Until his father, by deed of emancipation, in court, in three different years, emancipated James Beckworth okay. and made him legitimately a free man. So um, two things. That he was sincerely doubling down on wanting his children free. But as you were saying how he moved his family to Missouri, when you said that, mm-hmm. 
in my head psychically, I got that he did that for the benefit of his children, not just to um not just to like learn and be but not to be a part of that slavery institution by which they were born to kind of move them away from that and to give them an opportunity to live a life as a free man yeah jill that's exactly what i learned through the research tell me back then missouri was kind of a frontier in 1809 and the first thing he did he got james a apprenticeship with a blacksmith. That's cool. So that he could learn a trade. Very cool. I know, right? Mm-hmm. So he he was really he really loved his kids. It seems not like a master. It was he was a father. He was a father. That's right. Mm. Yeah, that's sweet. Mm. So um, ask me if he was a blacksmith for his entire life. Then, <laughs> Jennifer. So he wrote an entire biography about him being a blacksmith because that's i don't know be kind of boring Mm -hmm. and then i took the horseshoe (laughs) no it was nothing nothing like that in fact he was actually fired um as a blacksmith oops i was fired from Um, mcdonald's so i understand okay so you're just like Mm -hmm. him in 1824 still a young man beckworth joined general william ashley's rocky mountain fur company and he worked as a wrangler during the expedition to explore the Rocky Mountains. Jennifer. Yes. General William Ashley put an ad into one of the St. Louis papers saying he was looking for 100 enterprising young men to ascend the Missouri River for one to three years. Wow. And only 100 men were able to um, get the position. So they actually called those 100 Ashley Williams 100. That seems kind of exclusive. Mm -hmm. Like he must have been scrappy. He must have had some skills. For sure. Well, in 1825, something happened that would change his life. What? In 1825, he was captured by the Crow, the Crow people, while trapping. Now, Jill, according to his account, he was mistaken for the long lost son of a Crow chief. And so they admitted him into the nation. Well, that's lucky. Seems to be, sure. He learned the Crow language, their custom, their ways of living, and he married, oh, I don't know, between two Crow women and ten Crow women, depending on uh, the account, depending on the source. uh, quite the spread. Right, right, right. Wow. And apparently one of his wives was a Crow chief's daughter. My goodness. Mm-hmm. So he was. He seems to be kind of a player. So uh, I mean, two mm-hmm. to ten women. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it yeah. doesn't seem like he really took women that seriously. No offense, James Beckworth, but it seems like I don't know. Papa was a Rolling Stone. It does seem like that. And you know what? He did father many children um, while he was with the Crow, and he didn't really talk too much about his romantic liaisons in his memoirs, but there is one romance that stands out. Tell me. It was with a young warrior Crow woman named Pine Leaf. Cute. <laughs> I know. I love her. She had a twin brother who was killed by the Blackfeet. And she swore that she would take no man as her husband until she killed 100 enemy warriors with her own hands. That a girl. (laughs) You get it. You get them. And Beckworth really admired her. 
This is what he said about her. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. He said, whenever a war party started, Pineleaf was the first to volunteer to accompany them. Her presence among them caused much amusement to the old veterans. But if she lacked physical strength, she always rode the fleetest horses and none of the warriors could outstrip her. Wow. And when I engaged in the fiercest struggles, no one was more promptly at my side than the young heroine. She seemed incapable of fear, and when she arrived at womanhood, could fire a gun without flinching and use the Indian weapons with as great dexterity as the most accomplished warrior. My goodness, she's, she sounds feisty. I like her. I know. Mm-mm-mm. I like her, too. Now, he was totally after Pineleaf. I mean, he was wooing her. She sounds like quite a catch. Her. I'm sure he well, wasn't you know the only what? one. He, he, he was actually gaining prestige in the Crow society. Oh, so he wasn't too shabby? They would be like a power couple? Well, yeah, kind of. Like, who's a power couple today? Uh, today? I was going to say Brad and Angie, but you know, they broke off. Oh, all our Dax. references are so dated. No, no, Dax and um, Kristen Bell. Dax Shepard oh, and Kristen Bell. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, they're cute, Let's too. Let's go with that. Okay. Are Kim and Kanye still together? No. Oh, crap. See, all our references are so old. <laughs> Let's keep going. <laughs> no, he was quite a catch because, Jill, he actually rose in Crow Society from warrior to chief. So he was respected. He had prestige. He ascended to the highest ranking chieftaincy in the Crow Nation. Yeah, I mean, he was a big deal. He participated in raids and led raids, sometimes against uh, white parties and sometimes against other native nations. Um, But yeah, no, he totally would have been a catch. Did she ever give him a chance? Well, she would rebuff him again and again. Mm. She was quoted as saying that she would marry him, quote, when the pine leaves turn yellow or when you find a redheaded Indian. I like her. But I know I like her too. But his perseverance did eventually pay off. And here's why. Backworth returned from a misadventure when he was out raiding and everybody thought that he had been killed. But when he came back alive, that's when Pineleaf renounced the warpath and finally agreed to marry him. Oh, my God. Isn't that sweet? Well, that is really cute. I wish you would have held out, though, to be honest. <laughs> but yeah, me too. Because guess what? Five weeks later, he ended up leaving the crow and he never saw her again. Five weeks later? Mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. James, you're killing me, man. I know. He must have been much more interested in the chase than the conquest. Oh, five weeks. Poor Pineleaf. Poor Pineleaf. So why did he leave? Well, after being with the crow, he returned to St. Louis. Because remember when he was a boy and he lived in Missouri, it was a frontier And he was expecting the same thing. But he got there, and he was totally out of place. And Mm. he did not stay there long. Plus, his father had died, too. So there was really nothing there in Missouri for him. Gosh. So from then, he didn't stay in Missouri. He went to Florida. Because guess what? There was the Second Seminole War happening in Florida in 1837. So he went to go join the war? Yeah. He went to go fight in the war um, as a soldier and a courier. Um, He was there for 10 months, scouting and carrying dispatches, um, until the war settled down into a routine. So did he fight with or against the Seminoles? 
he fought for the United States Army. He enlisted. Oh. He volunteered mm-hmm, and fought against the Seminoles. I know after having lived with the Crow, you'd mm-hmm. think that he'd have some empathy, you know, more allegiance to the native yeah. peoples. Yeah. Very strange. But okay, he did it. Mm-hmm. So uh, once the fighting kind of lulled, he was he found it unendurable in Florida. And these are his own words. He said, now we had another long interval of inactivity, and I began to grow tired of Florida. I wanted excitement of some kind. I was indifferent of what nature, even if it was no better than borrowing horses of the Blackfeet. The Seminoles had no horses worth stealing, or I should certainly have exercised my talents for the benefit of the United States. Yeah, so basically, he would rather be out stealing horses than waiting, than just living in Florida with no, with no, uh, you know, combat happening. He really seems like an adrenaline junkie. He kind of does. He kind of does. Seems like he needs that sense of danger. Mm-hmm. Like he mm-hmm. likes living in chaos. That's where he feels at home. So he left Florida, and from 1838 to 1840, he was employed as an Indian trader to the Cheyenne on the Arkansas River, not in Oklahoma. He was on the Arkansas River closer to the Colorado area. He dealt with Cheyennes, Arapaho, Sioux, all of whom were traditionally the enemies of the Crow. Oh. And remember, he... Yeah, he remember he was he was living as a crow for like nine. He years. had at least three to eleven crow wives. Exactly, exactly. And now he's going back, and he's all like, "Yeah, I used to be crow, he's and like, now- hey, Cheyenne, I'm your friend." Right. right. Okay, tell me what exactly, happened. Exactly. Exactly. Well, he of course he tried to ingratiate himself with the Cheyenne, and he put out this this display of like bravado to try to like win them over what did that look like well i have a quote here it's pretty ridiculous are you ready Mm -hmm. he said i have come to the cheyennes who are the bravest people in the mountains as i do not wish to be killed by any of the inferior tribes i have come here to be killed by the cheyennes cut up and thrown out for their dogs to eat so that they may say that they have killed a great crow chief so he's identifying as a great crow chief here. Wow. But he's also like, he's also stroking their egos totally. Yeah, for sure. There was another trader at the time who was in the same village and he heard this and he said to Beckworth, you are certainly bereft of your senses. The Indians will make sausage meat of you. I agree with him. <laughs> Why would he identify himself as a crow? He should have just been like, hey, I'm James from... I'm James from the Black. Hey, what's going on? You know what I mean? Like, why would you be like, I am a great crow chief. Kill me if you will. Well, you know what? You'll see again and again that he was a master self-promoter. So anyway, um, it worked, Jill. It totally worked. He won over the Cheyenne with his bravado and also 20 gallons of whiskey. Oh. And yeah. And thanks to Beckworth's skill with diplomacy and winning over the Cheyenne, his employers enjoyed a successful fall and winter trade season with them. So that worked out. That sounds like he had a great career with them, and they must have really appreciated him. Mm, Well, not so fast. What? Uh, It was that year in 1840, so like that same year, he decided, you know what? I don't need to work for anybody else. (laughs) He quit the company and and became his own entrepreneur and his own independent trader. 
Wow. Yeah. So now he's a competitor and he actually kind of made some enemies there. I can see that. Mm-hmm. It's like, um, I don't know, when Natalie Merchant left the 10,000 Maniacs, like, I don't need the group. Mm. I'm going to go out on my own. Or Beyonce leaving Destiny's Child. You know, I'm trying to update my references a little bit. <laughs> kind of. That's still old. Anyway, so he, together with his partners, built their own trading post in Colorado. And Jill, that would become Pueblo, Colorado. You know, I looked that up and there's no mention of James Beckworth on Pueblo, Colorado's website as far as its history. It made me sad. I know, it made me sad. Interesting. Yeah, Hmm. go on. Oh, oh, and uh, side note, also during this time, he married a woman named Luisa Sandoval. That's four to 12 wives right there. I told you he was a player. Yeah. Hate the game, not the player. Now he's coming on to you and he's like, well, hello. Where are you guys driving to? I know. I know. He really did. (laughs) I'm blushing. Your daddy issues are on full display. Oh, oh. I like a smooth talking man with many ladies that just keep skipping town. That's what I'm all about. Dad wasn't African American. <laughs> he wasn't, but everything else seems pretty consistent. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. Well, more on that later. <laughs> See our bonus episode on Jennifer's daddy issues. <laughs> Coming soon. Okay. 1844. Then he moves to Mexico. So he just picks up he's he's done with Pueblo, Colorado and his wife. And he moves to and he moves to Mexico and engages in the Mexican-American War in 1846. My goodness. During the conflict, he stole reportedly 1,800 Mexican horses as spoils of war. Wow. Yeah, and he served as a courier with the US Army. So once again, Join in the army to engage in the war. He's on the forefront of history. He sure seems to be. All right, speaking of that, there's another historical event coming up, which he also plays a role in. Tell me. And that that is the gold rush of 1848. Well, anyone who was a part of American history during that time was a part of the gold rush. You know what? I would say that it would make total sense that he would go to California during this time because we've already established he's kind of an adrenaline junkie and an adventure seeker, and this would be the place to be. Mm -hmm. So he goes to California, and he opens a store at Sonoma, but then sells it, moves to Sacramento, and makes a living as a professional card player. Again, the Forrest Gump of the Wild West. Now, two years later... 1850, and this is really important. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. He discovered a pass through the Sierra Nevada mountains. Yes. You might remember, or you might you might already know, many of our listeners would know, that during the gold rush, countless people were rushing out west. And it's difficult to do that in a wagon through the mountains. I wouldn't do it. And everything wasn't well mapped. So remember the Donner Party? You referenced it earlier. They're delicious. (laughs) Tell us what happened with the Donner Party. Apparently, they were on on track to make it to 
California before winter set in, but someone, one of the guides said, hey, I have a shortcut for you. There's a cut through here and you should make it faster. The guide gave them directions, but didn't actually go through the shortcut with him with them and they ended up being snowed in mm. and had to resort to cannibalism to survive. Right. Yeah. So Backworth found a low elevation pass, a trail that spared settlers and gold seekers about 150 miles. He saved them 150 miles and also some very steep passages that were very dangerous just like the Donner Pass. So this was this was major that he uh, he established this trail that would make travel more quick and safer. That's amazing. I know it. I think it is. Apparently, this trail, so he established it, and then he was working on improving it, and he was supposed to be paid by the, the local municipalities, like the town of Marysville. But guess what? Hmm. Marysville didn't pay him because they had two huge fires, and they were basically broke. Aww. So he didn't get paid for the um, his his trail, the Beckworth Trail. But an aside, in 1996, the city of Marysville named a park after him because of his outstanding uh, contributions to their community. Well, that's nice. I think so. I know. I really do appreciate him making right on that. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Totally. Sure. Okay. But of course, he just didn't stay a guide. He's killing me. In the Sierra. He's literally the killing me. He actually settled down a little. This should make you feel a little better. He settled down and became a rancher in the Sierra Valley. He had a ranch, a trading post, and a hotel in the settlement of, which is now called Beckworth, California. Oh, good. I know, right? He's got a little community named after him. Now, it was there in the winter of 1854 and 1855 that an itinerant judge, Thomas D. Bonner, stayed in his hotel... And that's when Beckworth told him his story that would later become his book. Very cool. Mm-hmm. Alas, he did not stay a rancher. Four years later, he went back to Colorado Territory, became a storekeeper, and then was appointed a local Indian agent. That sounds cool. Mm, well, yes and no. He was a scout for the 3rd Colorado Cavalry Regiment. Uh-oh. What? He served in a campaign against the Cheyenne and Apache. Uh-uh. And he led a military militia to annihilate those indigenous inhabitants for the American settlers. That's crazy. It's heartbreaking. It was called the Sand Creek Massacre, and an estimated 70 to 160 friendly Cheyenne men, women, and children were murdered by the militia. That is crazy horrible. So odd because he was just friends with a Cheyenne a couple years ago doing business. You know, there's something about him. He has many accomplishments and he's he really, he sounds like an adventurous guy, but it sounds a little off to me. All these wives, this adrenaline junkie, his ability mm. to switch sides, living with the crow, mm. fighting with the Americans against the Seminoles, now leading or being participating in a raid to kill friendly mm. Cheyennes. I don't know about this guy, Jen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He's definitely an interesting psychological study. I'll give you that. Well, outraged with his association with the Sand Creek Massacre, the Cheyenne banned him from 
from trading with them Good for forevermore. Him. Good for them. Mm. Now, by now, uh, Beckworth is in his 60s. Okay, so he's not a young man anymore. He returned to trapping. He was again employed by the U.S. Army as a scout during Red Cloud's War in 1866. And then soon after that, he passes away in Montana while leading a military column to a crow band. Um, He gets severe headaches and a nosebleed, and modern historians think that it's a result of severe hypertension. In any event, he passes away in 1867, and a personal friend of his, Williams William Byers was also the founder of the Rocky Mountain News, and he claimed in his paper that the Crow people had poisoned Beckworth. He said that the tribe felt that they could no longer trust him because of his involvement in the Sand Creek Massacre. Now, Byers had no supporting evidence of this, but I mean, I guess it's a reasonable it's a reasonable assumption to make. What do you think? I agree 100%. Like I said, it seems shady. Well, the whole his whole death. There's not a lot of information, um, a lot not a lot of facts out there about about his death and the circumstances surrounding it. But what we do know is he did. He was given an honorary crow funeral, and he is apparently laid to rest in Crow Indian Settlement burial ground in Wyoming. Okay, I have a couple questions for you. Do you? I do because I want to know how come we hadn't heard more about him like we literally are right back where we started he he really did he's not my cup of tea he's more on he's more on your he's more my yeah, cup of tea he's more your taste but i don't understand why we didn't hear about him i think from the very beginning his autobiography was viewed as unreliable and you know, early historians, even right after his death, were like, this is just a bunch of tall tales, you know, his and, you know, his numbers were off. He exaggerated his accomplishments, but still there are independent witnesses who corroborate a lot of what he's talking okay, about. Stop. So he's not a complete liar. He's just he's just telling tall tales. OK, so I have a question. Is there anyone else telling his story? Was this just the only reason why he's known in history is because he himself documented his story with the judge that spent time with him in California? So remember, he was a mountain man and a trapper. And something you might not know about mountain men's in, about mountain men in the 1800s was that they would get together for what is called a rendezvous. Mm. At a ron- it's not what you think. It's not <laughs> at a rendezvous. The mountain men would get together and they would trade, and then they would tell stories. So it's kind of like. Um, kind of like a business convention, mm-hmm. only like camping. A, con- a conference. A conference? Like a conference, Like the most exactly. boring conference ever. <laughs> well, during these rendezvous, the very first one was in 1825. And as early as 1825, he had already established himself as a master storyteller. Now, what does that mean? He would tell these embellished heroic improbable tales of himself he would basically sit around the campfire and just tell these larger than life stories about his accomplishments and his feats and um you know it rubbed some people the wrong way were they jelly 
they maybe they were jelly. They he was known as quote unquote a gaudy liar. Like that's what he was referred to as by the other mountain men. But also, Jill, he did stand out. He was six feet tall, strongly built. <laughs> Settle down, my goodness. Give me a moment. <laughs> he wore his dark hair to his waist, and he had braids and ribbons and earrings, gold chains, crow leggings. So, I mean, he was an eccentric. He stood out. So you have this big, strong, <laughs> muscular <laughs> man, you know, who's dressed in this elaborate fashion, telling these outrageous stories. He rubbed people the wrong way. Sounds literally like you're describing Lenny Kravitz. <laughs> Like crow leggings. <laughs> yeah. So like I said, by the time it was 1866, his book had already been widely read for a decade. And by the 1870s, less than 10 years after Beckworth's death, historians were already calling his memoirs little more than campfire stories and just really chalking it up to exaggeration. But this is the thing. We already established that during that time in the 1800s, even newspaper accounts were highly, were written in, in a hyperbolic. very hyperbolic way. So why was That's his true. stories? I mean, remember Pauline Cushman, her stories, she perpetuated her own stories to make money. Why was his information or his stories that he was putting out under such scrutiny? I mean, that's a really good question because, I mean, think about like Jim Bowie, who else, Jill? Oh, gosh. Annie Oakley. Pat Garrett. Davy Crockett. Buffalo Bill. There are books and books and books written about the tall tales, the legends of these people. Oh, Jesse James. Uh, exactly. Not only were their stories not put under that same scrutiny, but they were also perpetuated and told again and again so their legends expanded. Right. James Beckworth didn't have that luxury. He's just sitting there pounding on his chest being like, hey, guys, this is what I'm doing. And everyone's like, exactly. You're just a gaudy storyteller. Exactly. So why do you think he wasn't believed? There must be something different about him. Something obvious. (laughs) Something. I just can't place what would make him different. What do you think? He was six feet tall. Was it his leggings? Do you think it was his leggings? <laughs> I think his leggings, are they sound pretty hot. I want to get myself some crow leggings. He sounds fashion forward. He really does. He was way ahead of his time. I don't know. I think Honestly. he was tall, six feet tall. That's unusual. That's unusual now if you're a woman. <laughs> Why do you think it is? Well, it's obviously, Jill, because he was an African-American. He was a man of color. He was a man of color mm. during a period of history where slavery is alive and well. Oh, that's that elephant in the you room. You know that he experienced prejudice and racism. You know it. Uh, of course. People looked at him. They were probably like, prove that you're free. You know what I mean? Like, who do you think you are? Exactly. Exactly. Yes. I mean, when you look at it that way, it's it's no wonder that he was a self-promoter. Who else is going to promote him? 
It's it's really disheartening. It is. He did have I know that you don't like him as much as I do. I think he's fascinating. I don't think anyone likes him <laughs> as much, <laughs> as, much as you do. Maybe pine leaf, but besides that. Seriously. I honestly him personally aside because I do have some issues with his character, but a lot of people in history, I have issues with their characters, but I appreciate their contribution to history and to the American experience. And their contributions have been reported on and printed and are there for us to learn about and read. Right. Even the Brady Bunch had an episode about Jesse James, right? Right. And he was an outlaw. Like, he wasn't even people- a good guy. Right. So these people have been in pop culture again and again, but this man was largely forgotten through history. We don't we hadn't heard his name before he started flirting with you in the car. That's true. That's true. And but I will say that modern historians and I'm when I say modern, I'm talking about after the civil rights movement hit in the 60s in the 1960s, modern historians do look back at his memoirs as a valuable account of life at the time. Well, sure, I think it's valuable in several ways, not just for the overall American experience, but when you think of the Wild West, I don't think of of anyone of color other than the natives and maybe Hispanic people or Mexican people being there, right? Right. I I literally said when we started the story, the only black person that I can name from the 1850s, like off the top of my head, is a Frederick Douglass. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm. The fact that not only was a slave, a man born into slavery, such a had such a pivotal role in in American history during a formulative time. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. We don't know anything about him and his contributions because he was black. We don't. You and I don't. Nope. And anyone who had the same sort of white education that we did probably doesn't either. And now everyone can flirt with him in spirit the way Jennifer has. (laughs) And let's not forget, though, Jill, and I didn't say this before, but he was the only African-American in the West to record his life story. The only one. That is huge. Think about all of the others, all of the other African-Americans throughout history from the very beginning that made pivotal contributions to the birth of this great nation. And we don't even know about them. And they weren't self-promoters, perhaps. And maybe maybe that's part of why. So who do you think our voiceless is? Getting us back on track. <laughs> Sorry. Um, definitely your new boyfriend. <laughs> definitely James Beckworth. Absolutely. But also all those other African-Americans whose stories were woven Mm -hmm. in the foundation of this country that hadn't been told. That'll be lost forever. I know. It's sad. It is sad. And it's unfortunate for all of us, to be quite honest. Because that... Yeah, no, for sure. Our history shapes our current identity. I know. Yeah. And by omitting these type of tales perpetuates inequality at best. Mm. And at worst, just straight up racism. Mm. These are the stories that would help integrate societies mm-hmm. and different cultures within America. Mm-hmm. We're because we're not all one thing. We're, we're not all one thing. And we're all part of the same story, though. I know. We're, we're all part of this story. 
We just don't have mm. all of the we don't have all the all the pieces. Well, yeah. I'm so glad that James came to you. I am too. Well, I'm so glad that Dennis is such a good man that when I told him <laughs> James Backworth was flirting with you in spirit, he was okay with it. Yeah. He's Dennis totally was like, okay. no, that's totally fine. Yeah. He's like, that's totally cool. Yeah. No, my husband is... is a- he's like, I get it. We're in an open spiritual relationship. <laughs> God. Oh. <laughs> So, no, seriously, what I love about the way James Beckworth came to me is that <laughs> is okay. that in spirit, he has the same personality that it sounds like he had in life. I mean, all of his images were so strong. The African-American man wearing the hat like a cowboy, literally, that was him. You, the pass-through versus the established area when you were thinking of a pass-through? Mm-hmm. It, he made a shortcut. Mm-hmm. In 1850, he discovered the Beckworth Pass. And I had a similar image with the fact that he was a guide to helping people pass through. That's true. Jill, you also had an interesting hit having to do with like violence, pox, boxing and, and punching, and also blood in the water. Explain that. Well, Beckworth was known as Bloody Arm because of his he was a skilled fighter. Mm-hmm. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. <laughs> and we were driving around and over the Arkansas River, and he worked on the Arkansas River as an Indian trader to the Cheyenne. He sure did. And let's not forget my sure did. image of the horseshoe, which Jill self-explanatory oh my gosh he was a blacksmith he was a blacksmith apprentice yes he was a blacksmith and they make horseshoes also the rancher (laughs) reference he was a rancher and then elvis's character in the movie flaming star and if you weren't already intrigued (laughs) this is what really got you half native and half white and he didn't fit into either world and of course Beckworth Beckworth also was of mixed race with an enslaved African-American mother and a white father he didn't really fit in anywhere and maybe that's why he moved around so much maybe that had something to do with it too Jill maybe he was trying to heal you leave him alone wow (laughs) wow We'll start working on the daddy issue bonus. He does love me. I don't. I don't understand the whole daddy issue joke. Are you serious? Do you have you? You don't remember, Dad? We should talk about this away from the microphones. <laughs> well, you brought it up. Our father was a womanizer who was very good at communicating, and it was a terrific salesperson. And then moved around a lot so much that we haven't seen him since. Oh, shit. You might be on to something. (laughs) Oh, my God. Someone just turned on the lights. (laughs) I'll get you Dr. Lisa's number. (laughs) Don't worry. We'll talk off air. Let's finish this up. (laughs) Transition. Jennifer. There is a fascinating quote that you found. Can you please read Devin Flores's quote for me? <laughs> right. The reason that this is so poignant is because modern historians are finding value, like I said, in James Beckworth's contribution. And this is one of them, Devin Flores of HistoryColorado.org. He says, today, Jim Beckworth's memoirs are still in print. They remain an interesting and valuable historical document 
providing a detailed and unique source of social history, a look into both Native American and early United States society from the point of view of an individual who, as an African-American man and freed slave, was not entirely either. Ooh, I like it. Jill, please tell the people where they can find us. Please check out our website, commonmystics.net. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Common Mystics Podcast. Please listen to us on Amazon Music, Audible, Stitcher, Spotify, Tuned In, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts, where you can leave us a positive review so other people can find us. Thank you so much. Thank you for being part of my therapy today. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you and good night. We have a lot more to talk about. (laughs) Bye.